one buttoned up. I'm very relaxed, as you can tell, but stretching. Dr. Jeff Wilson, I suppose we're going to give you the formal title, mate. Uh, welcome to the ISS podcast. Um, like we were speaking about just before the show, uh, Coco, one of our ambassadors, has been has been harassing us to get you on. Uh, and looking at your backstory and your bio website, I can see why um, an expeditionist with multiple, multiple world records, mate, g'day, welcome to the show. So good to be here. That's awesome. Good, good stuff. Uh, let's uh, talk about adventure. I can talk about that all day. Well, I mean, your adventure started, uh, your start in life was with what, really? Um, your parents fleeing, your dad's like, fuck this, I'm getting out of Uganda. We're gonna, I'm going to buy a plane and get to Australia. What, what's that yeah. about? Oh, I mean, he, it was a pretty weird time because they were, they were in Uganda when Idi Amin was starting to, to really rise up. And he was a good guy initially. Like he, the old man played rugby against him and he was, you know, one of the boys. And then when he got power, he just went a bit loco and started chopping heads off. And then we had a house on a river and the body count apparently was getting a bit scary every morning. There'd be bodies floating past. So they decided the only way to get their money out was to buy a light aircraft. And they bought a Cessna 175, which I've seen one in the flesh now and things like a flying tin can, uh, how you got, you can barely get two adults, but get two adults and then my, I was five, my sister was seven, jammed in the back and they flew for 42 days to get to Townsville. Um, so that that was kind of like the <laughs> In a single engine sister. Oh, crazy. And they were so fortunate that they, there's a bit of a backstory in that uh, about six months before they left, the old man, had flown to Kenya to get supplies because the country was falling apart. He couldn't even buy milk. So he flew to Kenya and he, he would come and, and do one circuit of the airstrip to check that it was safe to land. And he, he missed a couple of land rovers hiding under acacia trees at the edge of the forest. And he landed and they came flying out and there's all these boy soldiers basically with AKs and machine guns and homemade guns and, and they basically um, came to the edge of the plane as if they were going to take the plane. And my old man pretended as though he felt they were going to help him unload the plane and just started handing him packages, said, listen, take it to the Land Rover. So they're looking at their commander who's like, what the hell? And uh, while he's making the decision whether to shoot this guy or just take the plane, the old man pulled his guitar out and started singing on the wheel of the aircraft. And so they started unloading while he's singing and then they all came and sat around like school kids at, at the feet of this crazy guy playing the guitar, totally pretending to misunderstand the gravity of the situation. And uh, anyway, they, they eventually wrap up. He's running out of songs. He only had about six songs and he's on to his last song going, what the hell am I going to do? at the end of the song, finishes his last song, just stands up and gives the commander the guitar. And the commander looks at him and then salutes and says, okay, you know, we'll look after the plane. Locks, gets him to lock the plane, puts a guard on it, and then they give him an escort to the main road and then he drives off and literally said, I had to have a puke, you know, around the corner 
just because the, the situation was so tense. Anyway, he, re- he recognised the guy's voice and about six months later, the phone goes at about 8 o'clock at night. He picks it up, it's a landline back in those days, and the, the voice says, you don't know me, but I know you. I know you plan to flee the country. You need to leave tomorrow. And it was this guy who warned him a day ahead of time before they raided the farm and they wiped out. He was researching cattle that were sleeping sickness resistant and they pretty much found a cow that could survive in the worst parts of Africa. And the soldiers came in the day after we left and machine gunned the whole lot. So if this guy hadn't warned us, we would have never got out. That would have been the end of the, the story. Yeah, that would have been the end, honestly. I think it would have been. I can't believe. I mean, you're talking about a country that had just fallen apart. I mean, we know Africa can get very dark at times, but Uganda in 1975 was was just chaos. So we're very fortunate to get out. I can't believe they, um, to have that, to read a situation like that and to get, um, the balls to, I suppose they wouldn't have communications. Like they wouldn't have a hierarchy of, they wouldn't have quick comms to their rank higher up. So they would be like, oh, fuck, this must be right, I guess. And then just yeah. keep playing the situation as you go. That is. No, and then I don't, like I don't know how to sing, a guitar, or- sing or, or- <laughs> Well, you you were operating under I would a have, strict uh, chain of command. These guys were just chaos, like chaos theory. I mean, they, they tell another story where they were in the well, middle of this dead. whole thing, winding up. They they went to a fancy dress party, and and my sister and I were getting babysit, and uh, they were in a VW Combi, and no, no, a Combi, a bug. Remember the old bugs, the VW bugs, and there's five adults squeezed into this thing, and. Anyway, one guy, they're driving um, to this fancy dress. One guy had stupidly dressed as a Boy Scout and he had a little red um, piece of red tissue on in his pocket and they get pulled over by boy soldiers again and the, the fellow's like, open the bonnet. And he, he opens the bonnet and he's like, where is your engine? Because the engine in the, in the bike is in the back. And he's like, no, 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 the, the engine is in the back. He goes, where's your engine? He goes, it's, it's not in the front, it's in the back. Anyway, he gets so worked up, he's going to shoot him over the fact that there's no engine in the front. And while he's about to shoot my old man, he realises, he looks at this fellow with the, the khaki uniform on with a red slip. He's dressed as a Boy Scout for this fancy dress thing. He says, he's a communist. And he's like, no, 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 he's a Boy Scout. It's a fancy dress. Anyway, he has this guy on his knees and he's about to get shot and he pisses his pants, thinking, that's it, I'm gone, right in front of the whole group of them. And then eventually someone higher up comes and looks at all the uniforms and what they're wearing and says, no, 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 this guy's just going to a fancy dress. Don't shoot him. Let him go. So they all load him back up into the bug and they go to the party, but they get in the, the bug and this guy's pissed his pants and he's he's got to squeeze in and go to this party. But... I mean, it was just a period of complete chaos. We, how we, we got out of there as a family alive is, is you know, mind-boggling, really. I can't believe they take you on a plane. I, I mean, 
I would have been dead on that airfield because I can't play a guitar or sing. So that would have been the end of my story. I wouldn't have been able yeah. to rule them with <laughs> Cameron Fire Stables. Talk. Well, I think there's there's an Irish thing there where Wilsons are good at getting themselves into shit, but very good at talking themselves out of it. So um, I've I've had to use that skill many a time. Uh, yeah, so I mean that's a good segue straight into um, some of your actual exploits as a um, expeditionist. Is that I mean that's what we'll call it. That's what you are. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, for sure. Yep, yep, for sure. Um, so five world, five multiple world records. I know you got the big five. Five is it? Um, longest solo unsupported across uh, the, the polar journeys, the summit of the Dome Argus. Can you take take us through what? drives you to fucking want to do that yeah i mean it is the fascination for me is not really it's never been about the records it was always about a piece of country that had never been crossed or a a feature that's never been climbed um and it's always been for me about the remotest parts of the earth trying to get to parts that had never been reached and the amazing thing with that last polar journey, it was um, five and a half thousand kilometres, the longest solo, the longest team event uh, ever done, and 70% of the ice had never seen a human foot on it. Or, you know, people had never seen it with their eyes. So it was an incredible journey in terms of the fact that um, it got me into parts of the earth that nobody had ever got to mainly by virtue of the fact that without wind power, you couldn't physically walk it. You would exhaust before you got there and you couldn't get in and out in one Antarctic summer. So if you got left behind down there for an Antarctic winter, you're not going to survive. Like, I mean, Dome Argus in summer can get down to minus 70 Celsius and winter well below minus 90, sorry, minus 90 if you get caught in that region uh, for a winter, you're not going to survive. So the kites were key to me getting from the coast all the way into the interior, up the slopes of the dome, and then across the other side into wind flow that got me home. Um, and, you know, honestly, I, for that one, I was particularly chasing the longest solo record, and it was the only way I could do it because you run out of ice anywhere else on the planet. Um, but... It, it was also about getting somewhere remote. I think for the other journeys, the Sahara Desert, Greenland, Antarctica the first time, um, really they were just journeys of exploration for me but also understanding how much I had within me in terms of an endurance mindset. And obviously as my body gets older, the brain gets stronger and you have this tipping point where things just go ping because your brain's strong but your body's not quite up for it. Um, and I'm getting into that grey zone now where I'm managing, you know, a 50-year-old body instead of a 35-year-old body. And um, your recovery is not quite the same, but your brain power um, and your resilience is so strong that you can push yourself to death. And that, that is uh, a very dangerous area. And Henry Worsley, another explorer of great respect, I have a huge respect for him, but I think he, he got into that zone where, he was so resilient and so tough that he pulled a sled for seven days with a ruptured stomach and um, 
you know, it's not you're not going to come back from that. So I'm now in this zone where I think I've tapped into so many resilience keys that I can push my body into a very dangerous zone. Um, and that's another skill I'm learning now, not to go too hard to, to you know, it's important I get home. Um, so what, what it entails some of these solo expeditions with a kite? How long did it take you to do that? Oh, I mean, the last one, I thought I was pretty tough. Like I, I've been through some storms. I've been through some brutal journeys and we knew that this one was going to be difficult because I I didn't have time to climb from the coast to the top of the plateau so I needed a vehicle assist to get my gear 220 kilos of gear um, myself to 9,000 feet which is where the, the Antarctic plateau starts but the previous journey when I crossed Antarctica and set the the longest Australian solo record um, I walked through crevasses for two weeks but it's very very slow and arduous but you you're developing altitude and cold resistance over time you're not just throwing yourself into 9,000 feet 9,000 feet at sea level is moderately high it's not going to make you sick or anything but at the extreme ends of the earth, the air is very thin. So you're getting dropped into 13, 14,000 equivalent, you know, air thinness. And the temperature was brutal. So I went from Australia at 35 degrees, uh, the end of, you know, beginning of our summer, the end of our spring, um, landed in Antarctica. There was a big storm forming. And I said to the Russian, uh, support team. I want to be on that plateau before the storm hits the coast. I'm never going to get caught. Uh, back in 2013, 2014, I got caught in a horrific storm that I still have trauma from. So I could see this thing forming. I said, I want to be on that plateau on the other side of the Transantarctic Mountains because the, the, the mountains act like a bit of a brace and break the storm up. So 24 hours later, I'm driving up by vehicle, get dropped at 9,000 feet, and then there's this horrendous moment where the Russian team give you a handshake and they leave, and then there's complete silence and you realise you've got the longest journey of your life to get back to humanity again, 5,500 kilometres away. Um, within, it, within minutes, I'd frozen... Uh, and damaged my left hand quite badly, trying to get a drone in the air to film the moment. And uh, the, the drone didn't work. It was, it was about minus 27 Celsius, uh, which is, you know, it's cold, but for a seasoned polar explorer, that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, but I was not seasoned. Uh, my body wasn't ready. And within two minutes, I damaged my left hand. And um, I had this moment of panic where I thought, you know, I'm not ready. Uh, I'm just, I've bitten off way too much here and just had to set the tent, warm my hand and, and calm myself. Um, that that journey uh, went on for 58 days and I think probably the first 17 days was the most brutal because it was all upwind. I had wind in my face. The kites were pulling me beautifully, but uh, I had wind chill all down the left hand, left hand side of my body. I very nearly lost two fingers on my left hand. And uh, when I got home, I looked at the wind chill charts and realised for 17 days, 
the warmest I'd operated in was minus eighty eight Celsius wind chill. So you're not you're not meant to be happy and thriving at that temperature. In fact, you shouldn't even be outside. So to make headway, you know, making one hundred kilometers, one hundred fifty, two hundred kilometers a day over brutal bashing ice. Uh, and I, but I couldn't understand how at night I would just break down. I was in tears um, and just thinking, what is wrong with me? Have I have I just pushed too far? I'm I'm, I'm forty nine at the time. I was forty nine, thinking maybe this just can't be done with a body of this age. Uh, but it was the the wind chill. I just hadn't allowed for that wind chill. Um, cause, so you're, what would you say, 50 something days by yourself? Uh, 17 of those days is, is minor, nearly minus 90 degrees. What, and I think that's some of the secrets in that resilience is that you did break. Were you used to that sort of breaking down and, and building, being able to build yourself back up? Was that one of the keys to, you think, your success in doing yeah, it? Yeah, I think. Well, Max, this is the real shift on this journey because every other journey uh, I've pushed and pushed and pushed and then got to a breaking point and then I, I've run Sarah, my wife, who's an incredible, uh, she's an expeditionist in her own right and that she's managed the, the mental strain in the background over multiple journeys. But generally I would ring her and get a massive bitch slap and it would be, you know, like harden up, you put yourself in this situation. You talk yourself into this problem. Like, stop your whining, get your boots on and get home. That would be the usual attitude. But, you know, that worked in the Sahara Desert. I remember um, walking behind a sand dune and calling her in the Sahara Desert going, listen, we have 700 kilometres of landmines. We've had nine of our guys have um, emotional or physical breakdowns out of 13. Um, yes, you know, I was calling and saying yesterday my partner had a mental breakdown in the middle of a minefield and I had to drag him out for 100 kilometres um, flying these kites and pulling him through minefield. Um, over and over again we had people trying to punch on in the team and it was the worst team dynamics of any team I've ever built. And I remember her saying, listen, you got yourself into this shit, get yourself out of it. And that was a, a wake-up call for me and it worked because I wasn't really right at the end of my breaking point. In um, the first Antarctic journey, I lost food. I had two weeks less food because one of my sleds burst and it meant that I was very unlikely to get across without support and that support, unsupported status was so important to me. I rang home in a, in a state, got the bitch slapped put my boots on the next day and develop this travelling system where I would just travel for 16 to 22 hours a day on the same calories I'd operated on for eight hours and made up the distance over 10 days and ended up smashing the longest, sorry, the shortest crossing record by 11 days because of that lost food. If I hadn't lost the food, I probably wouldn't have challenged the record. But Sarah once again bitch slapped me. In Greenland, in the first week, we made very low mileage and I rang home with a bad attitude, said, listen, we're getting our asses kicked here. We might need to just can it and, and go and regroup and try again. And 
Sarah said, listen, your attitude stinks, bang, bitch slap, get on with it, put your boots back on, and we did it and smashed the record for the fastest out the north crossing. But on this last journey, I was physically done in, and she sensed the shift and thought, if I bitch slap this guy, he's not coming home. And especially on, on the slopes of Dome Argus, we were in what we call the DNR zone, which is a part of Antarctica where it was so remote and so high that they couldn't get an aircraft to me with surety it would take off again. So the air was so thin they could land, but they were not sure they could take off. They said, listen, within 500 kilometres of the top of the dome, you're on your own. So if you break down or break a leg in there, then it's going to be calling home and that's the end of it. Anyway, I called home 120 kilometres from the top of the dome well within the DNR zone and said to Sarah, I think I'm done. I can't move forward. I can't move back. Um, snow is so sticky. It had taken me 15 hours to cover two kilometres, taking one sled forward, coming back, getting the second sled, no wind power. I said, unless I get wind, I'm, I'm cactus. And she just sensed there was a shift and she was very gentle and kind and we had a very vulnerable conversation where she said, listen, I totally understand that you feel like you've done in, but you probably have more. Let's just double your calories tonight and sleep eight hours. And I think for anyone going through a crisis where they think, hey, I'm, I'm ready to tap out, this is me done, I think if you just did that, so, hey, listen, you might feel done, you might feel like it's time to tap out. And I know a lot of soldiers... Uh, who've come back and gone, I can't do this, I'm tapping out. I think if you just said to them, hey, absolutely hold that thought, but let's double your calories and sleep eight hours, you'd be amazed at what changes overnight. And uh, I remember that night going, okay, I'm going to dig a trench next to the tent so I understand which way I, I need the wind coming down this trench, jammed a ski pole with a little ribbon on it, if I need to, if I have any chance of getting to the dome under wind power, the wind's got to be over that trench in the morning. And uh, I doubled my calories, set the alarm for eight hours' time and got into my sleeping bag. The next morning I woke up and my body felt absolutely ruined, but my mind had started to fire again. And I unzipped the tent fly and looked at my little ribbon and it was perfectly over the trench. So somehow during the night a miracle had occurred and we had wind going up the dome. The wind in Antarctica never goes uphill. It always rolls downhill from cold to colder. Um, so to get a wind forecast where for a short period of time it was blowing uphill was just amazing. So in mad panic, I packed the sled, put my boots on, uh, texted Sarah through the sat phone, said, I'm on the move, watch the transponder, so she could see my satellite locator and realised I was making headway up altitude. And 22 hours later, I dropped the kite. I hadn't drunk, hadn't eaten, just had flown that kite through every zephyr of wind and dragged us to sleds, which by that stage were probably about 150 kilos, uphill through deep snow to the top of the dome, dropped the kite and just collapsed, basically. But she had got me there through vulnerable language, and we've now really discovered that if, if you really want the best out of someone or yourself, vulnerability is key because I, I see vulnerability as uh, the pressure cooker, you know, just un, undoing the 
the pressure a little bit, letting a little bit of steam off through vulnerable language rather than being the big tough guy or big tough girl and keeping it all inside and then you just explode and you either, you know, finish it and tap out permanently or you just leave the challenge and, and leave your potential behind. So vulnerability was something that we learned on this last journey and I think for anyone going into a situation where resilience is going to be called upon, you know you're going into into the cauldron, into the UFC Thunderdome, you need to start practising vulnerable language. Find a mentor or a coach that you can be blunt and honest with and it's going to double your chance of getting home in one piece. What What is vulnerable language? Are we talking, and holy shit, what you would have conversations with your partner that you the chances of dying out on these expeditions would be pretty high what conversations are you having with her before you're setting off and and the, the conversation you're having with her when you think i'm fucking done here and i can't go on and what does that vulnerable language we're talking just opening up and sharing yeah i think i mean vulnerability for men uh, women do it quite well, you know, like they 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 get together and they talk things through way better than we do. It's been something that's really only developed for Australian men, particularly, I would say, in the last decade. It'd be very rare for your dad or my dad to have ever sat down and had a vulnerable conversation with a mate where, you know, you might, it's just about being open and honest. And if you think of your best mates, the best mates are the ones that, actually tell you how they're feeling. The guys that you can't get near, who keep their cards close to their chest, um, you're never going to forge close friendships with them. So we understand now that if you want to engender openness with someone, if you want, to, if you want them to trust you, you have to give a bit of yourself. And that's through vulnerable language. You know, um, Just cut the bullshit and uh, be open put your cards on the table, hey, this is what I'm struggling with, this is what I'm good at, um, I, you can rely on me for this, please don't rely on me for this. Um, you know, just be open. I think this pretense, um, the guys that worry me now, if I, if I want to pick a guy who I know is going to be someone I can rely on for a long, arduous journey, he wants to be someone who has cards on the table, will tell me honestly if He's, he's developing a blister on his left boot, on his left foot, doesn't hide it until we've got bone poking out and the expedition's over. You know, it's just about being open and honest and saying, hey, listen, I'm not feeling good today. We're not going to get a good mileage day today. Let's work together. And Simon, who I um, did the Greenland journey with, is just one of those men who who is family, like he's my son-in-law, but... He was a phenomenal open book. I was able to read him. I was able to be honest and open and vulnerable with him. And when you're traveling as a duo, it's much harder to get your peaks to match. So your high mileage days might be his low mileage days, but by being vulnerable, you can work and, and work better as a team. So um, I can't stress in terms of resilience development, how important it is. From a soldier's point of view, uh, obviously, there's a limit to how far you can go because you don't want guys blubbering to each other in a crisis situation under heavy fire. But 
I still think uh, it has a place, you know, just being honest. If you're working with a group of guys who are open and honest with you, you're going to trust them, they're going to have your back. Uh, it's a vital skill and we need to learn to do it in suburbia so that when we're in the firefight, we're being open and honest and vulnerable and can trust each other. Mate, I couldn't agree more. Definitely transparency and, and being open with everything that's going on is a must. And I think the way – Sarah, is that right? Yeah. The way she responded in that, with, with contrast is what's needed. And so uh, in the military, it would be great to see younger soldiers being more transparent and open about everything, but not expecting the soft double your calories answer every time. I think the old get up and keep moving response is, is – more than useful in in ninety percent of the occasions, but you just need someone who really understands and and can kind of cut through the bullshit and and really pick up what exactly what you're putting down to know when it's time to go. Or oh, I'm not going to tell you to get up this time. I'm going to I'm going to give you some. I'm, I'm going to support you in staying there and, and eating more and getting warm. Um, and I think that's the that's the bit that's needed in the military because if we just trained everyone to be completely open, vulnerable and transparent at all times, expecting that they're going to get the, okay, go and have a rest response, that becomes a problem. But, yeah, it sounds like sounds like she's a switched-on woman. Oh, she's, she's got me home more times than, than most. But, I mean, it is really, and we've tried this in our veterinary business in that we want it to be open and vulnerable and then you, you run the risk of creating this culture of complaint where, People have a hard day and they just want to complain about it. And I'm like, no, this is not vulnerable language. This is we're not giving you an excuse for not doing your job. Like if you're a soldier, you are, you are designed and trained to do your job and to go and go and go until you can't go. But I do want to know what's happening inside your head. Like I don't want you to hide it and then just suddenly, you know, off yourself or, or give up. We need, we need to know that. But that doesn't mean we engender a culture of complaint. So it's a very delicate balance. Um, so I think vulnerable language is, has got to be distinguished from complaint. Like complaint is that's just whining for whining's sake. And, and if we're developing resilient humans, and I spoke to the army up at uh, the Brisbane base um, when I met Toko probably six months ago, and that that was, it was evident that a lot of our young soldiers are struggling with that balance. You know, I want to be seen, felt and heard and I want to be resilient. How do I get that mix right without becoming a complainer or a whiner? And we've still got some work to do there, but there's some pretty key things we'll talk about in terms of that resilience development a bit later. Yeah, I think I think defence as a whole, uh, even in the veteran community, but defence as a whole, they've gone so far to one end for so many decades or centuries where it was shut up, work harder, shut up, work harder, we don't hear about it. And then they've realised they need to express a bit more human emotion and they've gone, same as everything at the moment, they've gone so far in the other direction that it'll, it'll take some time but eventually it'll sway back and forward and they'll find happy middle ground where they're allowed to be tough, alpha, male or, or females, but also show vulnerability. But I think it's going to take them some time to find out where the middle is. It's definitely a delicate balance. And I, I think um, the best place to find that balance is in a harsh environment, you know, whether you're getting shot at or not. It it, um, it definitely finds you cracked. 
Yeah, the um, uh, le- true leadership, being able to get the best out of the people underneath you, having emo- has to have a an amount of emotional intelligence. I think, uh, like we say, when do you give them the stick? When do you give them the carrot? When do you? Uh, and a lot of people used to confuse leadership in the army with loudership and just get up and go. Um, and I guess you don't really develop that until you've been through certain situations yourself. I don't think a, a 17 year old kid who's, who's not experienced some of the, the, the lows and develop that EQ. Is it a teachable thing? I think learning from people like yourself, um, would absolutely be something that would be, you know, invaluable to the army. Well, I love that word, loudership, because, I mean, it, it just getting loud and boisterous and, and grinding someone down can sometimes be the worst thing for your team because you're, you're almost ensuring breakdown and failure. So having that EQ to go, okay, this person is taking the piss, they need, you know, the stick or a firm hand, this person with a little bit of gentleness, I'm going to get another 10K, 20K, 30K, uh, out of them, you know, that, that's the balance. Um, and that's probably the joy because of you used to have teams, right? Yeah. yeah we, we've certainly done some journeys with teams and, and it's, it's dynamic, but it's difficult, you know, and the harder the challenge is, the bigger the team, the higher the chance of failure. Um, and that's why I think the solo journeys are very, very difficult mentally because you, you know, that first three days is very, very challenging mentally and then you get to probably day 10 where you're suddenly in your groove and you, you don't care if uh, you don't see anyone. There's a, an incredible French sailor in the first Vendee around the world. Oh, I think it's the Golden Globe around the world race. Uh, it got to the point where he had to turn and head for the UK and was winning the race and uh, said, bugger it, I'm going to go around again. And I always wondered, why the hell did he do that? But I... About day 30 of a solo journey, you're like, oh, I don't think I need people anymore. Uh, so you do. But to get to that day 30 is really, really brutal. You know, you're, you're missing home and friends and family. and the night What is, what is going on? Because that, that used to be a prison, uh, a, I mean, isolation. You put them in the hole in prison um, as a form of punishment to, you know, isolate human beings. What is going on? through your brain on a solo 50, 50 days by yourself. Is oh, that negative? I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're definitely controlling, like your whole day is spent controlling your mind and, and being really disciplined with it. Like I on the first solo journey, I disciplined myself to only think of home between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. And any time outside that hour, if I thought of home, uh, I would quash it and just get onto the job at hand. So, and then when I got to the, it was a three and a half thousand kilometer journey. I got to just over 1500 kilometers and thought, okay, open the floodgates now. I'm, I'm nearly halfway. And at that point in time, I let myself think of home all day, all my awake hours. And, and that really propelled me. So I think you get this curve where, you know, you're thinking at home and it detracts from your performance early and then you get to the halfway point. Uh, and for me, it's always been a journey home. I think that's why I've been able to get home so many times and that I'm very careful because I, I know that if I make a mistake, I'm not coming home. 
Um, but the second journey, I, I, I wasn't able to do that. I, we had for the first time video calls on that one and that really played with my mind because you're trying to block out and be disciplined about not thinking about home and family, but in the evening you're doing a FaceTime call through the satellite dish and that's kind of screwing your whole mindset. And, and that may have been another reason why I struggled so much mentally on that last journey, aside from the brutal temperature. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, Max, you're dead right. It, it is a mind game and there are much better men than me in terms of their pedigree and ability and sponsorship and performance pre-expedition who failed um, because of the mental, the mental game. Do you think your childhood, um, I noticed and you're doing a bit of research, um, a little bit of bullying and, and some of the surgeries that you had for corrective surgery and that, that tough upbringing, do you think that is part of not putting words in your mouth, but did that help you at all? Um, because you used to see guys going through selection or going through basic training, these guys that had never failed at anything in life and they were always high performers. And as soon as they would miss a checkpoint or they would effectively, they'd self-destruct and couldn't keep going and they would withdraw or, or in basic training, they'd get chastised. You know, as an instructor, you would sort of see that in someone and then they just couldn't build themselves back up. Oh, absolutely, Max. I think, I mean, if we look at life as a series of valleys and mountains, um, you don't get the mountains without the valleys. So those valley points, and I think this is a shift when we're talking to young people about resilience is going, you know, we look at, we're trained to look at the hard times as times to be rushed through, avoided, don't immerse yourself in them. Uh, but if we can get them to understand that that's when they're building character. We don't build character on the beach or at the snow or on a holiday somewhere. We build it when we're getting bullied or when we're getting facial surgery after facial surgery. Um, and, you know, that character is what you draw on when you get to your next low point. So I think for me as a kid, um, having to fight a lot, you know, in pretty tough boarding schools in Africa and Charters Towers and then in Indonesia, um, you know, as a cleft palate kid, I can't remember, six or seven ops by the time I was 13, that facial surgery was so incredibly painful that I learned this technique of, of drawing myself out of the situation. So you're almost hovering independent of the pain and, and I use that a lot on the end of a very, very long day of um, traveling over snow where your body's just getting hammered, the kite's pulling you, um, you pull yourself out of your body and you can get 30, 40, 50, 60 extra kilometers, you know, past what your body had said, listen, I'm out, tap out for the day. So those skills that I learned, um, and I think that mongrel spirit, you know, going, yeah, knock me down again, 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 I'm always going to get up. Uh, so that, that little street fighter, um, you know, grabbing a nut and twisting it so that you win the fight, you're not ever going to get um, uh, get done over. You know, works time and time again. And, and you're right, we see kids or adults that have had uh, a glory streak. They never had to draw on character. And the first challenge, they give up and pack up and go home. And, and uh, that's a shame because that 
that first failing is where they're starting to build character. And if we can get them to understand, hey, this needs to be immersed in, this is where you need to, to learn to enjoy the pain and understand you're building, you're building yourself. You, you're going to get Teflon tough if you stay here and work with it. I uh, I think mate, if I can, if I, I, it does make me nervous at the moment, um, having young kids that, I, and, and I can appreciate it too. That anti-bullying is such a high focus kind of agenda item at the moment, but getting picked on in school, as long as it's not overly destructive, if it's just normal kids being kids, and that that definitely starts building character, and it's it's I'm worried. Like I've got young kids that are going to start start school soon. And everything's so wrapped in, in cotton wool and bubble wrap that when they get to their early 20s, my fear is that they have no resilience. And obviously I'll try and I'll, I'll rough them up enough, hopefully, to, to keep them on the straight and narrow. But, yeah, to, I mean, that old, what's the old saying? Like hard times make hard men, hard men make easy times, easy time makes, times make soft men and soft men make hard times. It feels like where we're at at the moment. Like the old guard that actually – lived tougher lives uh, are all getting older younger generation our age and below we've had it way too easy what's going to come in the next 20 years who knows but the world's already looking like it's falling apart because we've got too many soft people well i think so resilience resilience and and, well not bullying i wouldn't say introduce bullying back into the school curriculum but some form of (laughs) adversity for children definitely because of the way hierarchies work and kids work you're never going to be able to get rid of that rust and, you know, that kind of tussle that we get in the playground. Um, I think that the reality is, though, that we we are creating easier childhoods for people and that's not, that's not helping our kids. So I think it's dads going, okay, I don't want you to go through tough times, but, you know, our tendency is to rush in and rescue when, when a kid's got a, a, a person in school who's giving them a hard time or, you know, on the footy field or whatever it is. And I think it, it's just coming back a little bit and going, okay, I'm going to give you all the skills to deal with this challenge, but I'm not going to pull you out of it. I, I want you to, to walk through this. Mm-hmm. And I think getting our kids, just letting them get dirty, you know, they don't have to have a tough time, but, Take them camping and, and take a crap tent that leaks and a sleeping bag that's not warm enough and, and you know, forget to bring the, the bloody lighter so they, they don't have a fire. And, um, Sounds like my average camping trip. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, a beautifully polished camper with hot showers and it doesn't teach them anything. So getting him dirty, getting him in a creek and uh, having a couple of cold nights in a wet tent all of that stuff is so valuable um, and, you know, learning. I think the whole thing with the bullying thing is it's actually them learning how to deal with crisis, you know, de-escalate tension, stand up for themselves. Um, there are some really gentle kids, though, that um, are never going to prosper or do well with that type of thing and we obviously need to protect them. But for the average kid, um, it's bloody brilliant for them. It, it teaches them grit. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing, talking about grit, I think if you look at the one thing that we find 
Um, and going back to Metz's, you know, comment about these guys on selection who just tap out at the first failing. If we look at, at grit being a mixture of passion and purpose, if if you do not have passion about what you're doing and you don't have purpose about what you're doing, then you can be the toughest bloke in the world and you won't have the grit to get through it. So the guy that or the girl that really believes in what they're doing, you can knock them over 10 times with a 4B2 and they'll get up and keep moving. Um, you know, the guy, the girl that, that understands that they're, they're here and now in their purpose and they have the passion for it, they will be the ones that will be going 24, 48, 72 hours later. So I think if we, if we teach our kids, I, I want to find out what your passion is and what your purpose is, then the grit will come. Um, I think that the big issue is probably not, and Sarah always gives me chip for cork for using the word softness, but for those people that we find have an early tap out, it's generally because they are without purpose. If, if we can fix their lack of purpose, the grit will come. So, I, I, you know, often we focus on the grit and that's probably the wrong end of the spectrum to work on. If we go, okay, what is it that you're passionate about? What is your purpose? Why are you here on the planet? You're not just flesh and blood wandering around you know, getting blind on the weekend and then going back to work and doing it all again like a lab rat. Let's find out what your purpose is once you know what your purpose is. I mean, if you look at Coco Quilty, uh, what he has been through is a shit show. Like he, most people would be sucking their thumb in the fetal position in a padded cell somewhere, but he has found his purpose. His purpose is to get into the Australian population and make them realise that the best day of his life was when he was blasted by an IED and very nearly died, and that changed his attitude to family, it changed his attitude to friendship. He found his purpose and the grit has come secondary. You know, he's just um, an Aussie example of true grit. And uh, I think if, you, if he hadn't had that passion and understood his purpose, he'd probably be focusing more on the pain and be in that fetal position. Yeah, I think those gritty. I mean, true grit is what is the is the last exercise you have to do in singleton before you march out. True grit. You want those mongrel, gritty, you know, rough guys from and girls from from these upbringings, um, and you always see them make the best soldiers. These mongrel, hobbled together people. Yeah, I think it's great. What is your what is your internal dialogue saying? Do you think so? Do you have an, a positive internal dialogue or a negative internal dialogue when you're when you're out there? Would you say one is more prevalent than the other? I think I think you tend to be pretty critical because you're you're by yourself. So there's no one there to say don't talk to yourself like that, or um, and you definitely swear shitload more than you would in suburbia. Because you're 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 on edge anyway. You're you're aware that you're super exposed. Everything's cold. Like you, the tent when the stove is on might might get to close to zero. As soon as you turn the stove off, it freezes, and you're back down to minus forty, minus fifty. Um, so there's just never any respite. You know, for fifty eight days you're cold. 
and uh, it, it, you're always on edge. But when you make a mistake, break equipment. Hey, so are you cold? Body. So are you sorry? Are you are you cold in your sleeping bag, or you, like you're just not dying? You're not comfortable, but you're just not dying. No, I, I think you know. You talk to no matter how good your clothing is, you you're constantly shivering. Like you you're burning uh, nine thousand kilocalories per day. Your bowel can only absorb six thousand, so you're you're dying. Your your body is depleting. Um, the first Antarctic crossing, I, I lost 22 kilos. The second, I lost 17. Uh, so you're burning that 3,000 kilocalories per day in flesh. And your fat goes first and your muscle goes. Um, so you're, it's a race against time. Maybe, if you're out there maybe I need long, to do some Antarctic crossings. Yeah, I don't know why they don't get gyms down to minus 50. You just put people in there, watch TV and burn fat. Um, but it, it is... <laughs> It's an environment that just pounds your body and, and finds your weaknesses. So um, your internal dialogue is super important. You know, you, you do learn to control it. But when you make a mistake, you're just like, oh, Jeff, you're effing idiot. What have you done? Um, you know, you've lost gear, you've broken gear, you've made a navigational error, you've cost, cost yourself time. And um, on the slopes of the dome, I... I had a navigational error where I I pushed myself around the dome rather than up the dome and wasted a lot of time. And then in the following days, you you really struggle to to not punish yourself for that mistake because it it's a mistake that could cost you your life. Um, and I imagine you know people that have made a mistake. I we had a friend of the family who who died next to his. Um, motorbike crossing the Sahara Desert, you know, a long time ago, but his internal dialogue, I imagine, was brutal in those last few days because it was a mistake-driven death. Um, getting your mind to just go, okay, this has happened. Let's not be too harsh on ourselves. Let's learn from it, um, but keep positive and keep going forward is a real trick. And that's something that's taken me time to master. What do they do? What does your your prep work look like mentally and physically to sort of do some of these expeditions? Are we, and what's the time frame on them? It'll change. It'll change depending on the journey. And I, I think, you know, some of the mechs I've over-prepared for where I'm, I'm wound up like a steel spring going into them. And I, I've definitely relaxed a bit more now, understanding that the best place to develop uh, that extreme fitness that you need is on the journey and wind up slowly. So, um, you know, for example, for this last journey, it was probably a six-month training regime and it, it involved a lot of brutal uh, tyre hauling, so tyres on the beach. And we live on a farm with a horrendous driveway that we call the bitch um, because you you just look up that thing, it's probably 700 meters of concrete at a 30 degree oh, probably more incline and once you load up tires on that the goal was before that journey to be able to do three loops of the farm the farm loops probably three kilometers um, to do three loops of that with three tires then on you I was ready but it takes you six months to progress from one tire to two tire to three 
especially up this driveway. Uh, but the amazing thing with that is that so you're sorry, you're, you're carrying, you're you're dragging them, or yeah, you've just got a, a shoulder harness um, and then a piece of bungee to uh, some line to the tie. And the idea is it's simulating the load on your lower spine hauling sleds. It's really your your spinal muscles, your lower back, your thighs um, that cop the beating. So you you're pulling progressively stronger loads, and then down to the beach. The interesting thing, watching a lot of the Northern Hemisphere guys, having seen what we've been able to achieve training on sand, have switched to sand training over snow training. And I'm like, the only reason we train on sand is we don't have any snow. We're like the bloody Jamaican bobsled team, uh, you know, training on the sand. But the friction load is so extreme that you develop this incredible resilience over time. And... Uh, I think if you want to break someone, hauling tyres on sand is pretty effective. Classic. But, I mean, that, that no, process. Mate, we lost your audio. Oh, did you? Have you got it? You got it now? Oh, lost it. Have you got Adrian? Adrian, you there? Yeah, I've got you, mate. No, we lost you. Can you hear Adrian? Okay, cool. So, I mean, that That's training right, process will, will wind up. And the, the thing to remember is up until the last month, I'm working full-time. So I'm working a 40, 50-hour week plus training in the mornings, training in the evening, a fair weights regime. Uh, but it's predominantly this tire hauling. The kite flying, uh, we're lucky here on the coast. We have really good wind flow. So most of the kite flying is on water. Um, you know, the the thing is we're competing against guys who their backyard is a ski field or, or you know, a big open tundra of ice and snow and they can kite in the north of Norway. Or, um, so it's, we're always, uh, you know, buying the eight ball a little bit until we get in country and then that first week, 10 days, your body's very quickly catching up and acclimatising. Um, but in terms of... Um, you know, professionally driven training, it's always been kind of self-managed for me. I, I kind of know my body intimately and know when I'm ready to go and, and where I need to be. I can't believe Paul and um, but they make us drag uh, three tyres 30 metres for a, on the Army Pezza and I'm cooked, let alone nine kilometres dragging a tyre. Yeah, three tyres. It's uphill. Uphill is horrendous. Uh, but, you know, it's so funny because during that whole training phase, Simon, uh, my son-in-law trained on and off with me, but you'd get guys, you'd meet them down the beach or at the pub or, hey, oh, man, I, I really want to train with you. And I'm like, man, I'd love you to. That would really help me mentally to have someone push me and often there'd be younger guys. And anyway, we'd see them once. They'd try Train once and you'd never see him again. I'm like, what the hell? I'd be over. No, it's just they would do one session and go, freak, never going back. <laughs> Mate, um, so all this training, all this preparedness, um, you know, and your support network that you've got, has there been a time where you've been like, in spite of all that, like this is the day 
I die. This is the moment. Like I'm, I am brown bread now. And and where do you over? How do you oh, overcome that? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the the difficulty is is when you get to that moment, understanding that even the best prepared person can just come up against, um, you know, a crevasse field or a storm or, you know, a grizzly bear nearly freaking killed me in Alaska. You know, that was just completely out of the blue. This bloody grizzly what happened? charged. Oh, we were on a, a really low-key adventure with my son. It was meant to be his gap year, um, you know, journey, coming-of-age thing, make a man of him. And I promised Sarah it would be low-key. And we, we flew to the top of the Brooks Range. There's a lake there called the Summit Lake that drains down the Brooks Range. Which, if you imagine, Alaska's like a finger with a spine in the middle of it. It's in the middle of that spine. And we pumped up these inflatable kayaks and were meant to just – meander down this pretty cool creek. Anyway, the creek turns out to be a raging torrent well beyond our ability kayaking and it would have been instant death hopping into it. So we had a 90-kilometre portage through wet, sticky mud uh, that took about five days to get to water that was actually navigable. During that time, I broke the sat phone, so we lost all communication with the outside world. Had four days where Sarah was convinced we were dead. And finally, I, in rice, I managed to get enough buttons working to send her an SS, SMS saying, I'm alive, phone, you know, fuck, uh, we'll, we're coming, just relax. And uh, we got to the base of this mountain that we'd agreed to climb, said, listen, we don't have comms, so we're not climbing anything. And the next day came around this bend in the river and there's a massive grizzly on the side of the bank and he's probably 60 meters from the edge of the, the river and i'm probably 20 meters into the river and i'm holding position against the current with the paddle whisper whisper to kid grizzly grizzly he comes in behind me next minute this thing charges and i've seen fake charges where they they run in and they present run and then present to try and push you out of their territory and uh, I was waiting for him to present, and he never presented. He just kept coming and literally covered that 60 metres. It was the size of a Honda Civic, and he's spitting foam out of his mouth. There's pebbles flying out the back, and I'm scrambling for a flare gun that I had on my chest to shoot him with a flare gun, and I never got the Velcro open before he was on us. He, he hit the water, and I'm thinking, okay, the water is going to protect us, and it didn't. It just kept coming. And he surfed probably 10 feet on his chest and then took about three strokes. And then literally it was like he hit a, an invisible glass pane. He just stopped about a boat length from me and all the wind came out of him. And you could smell kind of fish and berries on him. And I just remember thinking, man, that, what the hell happened? He, he was literally half a second from tearing me apart. And he stopped. And this is the nature of adventure in that you can do everything right. Like we had had some bad stuff go wrong, but we've managed it, absolutely got everything in line, got back on track, got comms out and made good decisions. We're not going to climb. Let's get out of here in one piece. And then, boom, within a millisecond, I was nearly killed by a grizzly 
And I still, you talk to people and go, no, nah, that's a dead set charge. He, he probably, you know, why would he have stopped? Very strange. Anyway, we, we managed to get away from the bear, but another time uh, on the 2013-2014 Antarctic crossing, I started the journey uh, with a deteriorating forecast. And you imagine Antarctica is like a dinner plate upside down. You've got sea ice meeting the perimeter ice, and then you've got this glacier or climb to 9,000 feet. The storm hit me at the base of the glacier, and it's almost like you, you've got somebody driving a car against a brick wall. That compression zone is way more dangerous than if you're on a flat surface or you're hiding behind mountains. So over three days, this storm built and built and built, and I was ringing the manufacturer of the tent going, okay, what can this thing handle? And they said, okay, 80 knots is where it'll break up. I'm thinking, well, I'm at, I'm at 60, 65 now and it's rising. That doesn't bode well. So then I rang my mentor, Eric Phillips in Launceston and said, listen, Eric, this is what I've done to survive. I've built a wall upwind. I've packed the nose of the, the tent full of snow on the inside and the outside. Um, I've got everything stored. I've got the sled in front. Um, it was a breast cancer charity, so there was a set of boobs on the sled made out of Templar and it had the nipples facing downwind. Um, who knew boobs are actually a pretty good spoiler? <laughs> and that was pushing wind up over the tent. Um, but I still felt like the storm was deteriorating and I wasn't going to make it. And Eric said, listen, if you're at 70, 67, 70 knots now, it's likely to exceed what the tent can handle. You need to call Sarah and let her know what's going on and, and let, you know, get prepared that you're not going to come home. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if the tent breaches, you're going to have Fuck. probably three to four hours before the spin drift gets into your down, your body will melt the spin drift, your thermal properties will deteriorate and you'll become hypothermic and die. No one can get to you by air, no one can get to you by foot. Uh, anyone entering that storm is going to die trying to save you, so no one's coming. So I hung up and just had this moment of, oh, man, this is probably one adventure too many. And the, the inside of the tent, you imagine you, you parked a tent behind the 747 and then got inside it and tried to live for four days. Um, your brain is, is about ready to burst. The side of the tent is billowing. You can't get a stove lit, so you haven't eaten or drunk for the best part of 48, 72 hours. You're just getting hammered. And the, the actual barometer changes in there are moving your eardrum so that you start to feel like you're going crazy because it's just like someone pushing air in and out of your head. During that whole time, you're having to yell to be heard on a phone. So the thought of ringing Sarah and saying, listen, I think this is it, um, is not something you want to do. But if I leave it until the tent breaches, I won't be able to talk to anyone. So I called her and she could hear the storm in the background, hear how much stress I was under. I just said, Sarah, I'm really sorry. I'm three days into this journey. I'm only 30 kilometres from the Russian base. There's three and a half thousand kilometres to go and I think this is the end. And there was silence on the other end of the phone for about 10 seconds and then... She came back like a raging lioness. And this is pre-vulnerability days where she's gone, 
don't you freaking think of dying there after the shit you put us through, training all over the world. You've left the family for long periods of time this year. Um, you've left me with the veterinary business back home, and now within three days you're talking about curling up and dying. Get your damn boots on, get outside and, and build the biggest bloody ice wall you've ever built and don't even think about getting dead in here. And she hung up. And I sat in there with the scream of the wind and just thought, man, she has no idea. I'm already at the very end of my physical capabilities and the storm is not peaked. And uh, over the next day, it got to about 78 knots. And at 78 knots, you're thinking, well, that's close to 80. This thing's going to fail. Like, it just needs a pinprick and the, the nylon's going to go and I'm in the elements. Um, and I had this pound the ground moment where I just lost my shit in the tent and punched the ground and, you know, whatever your belief is, prayed to God for a change in the weather, just demanded a new deal of cards. I do not like these cards I've been given. This is not fair. I've trained so hard. I've uplinked to the best people in the world. I've flown to Canada to the best polar survivalist. I've learnt off her. I've uplinked to the guy that holds the world record, Borges Land. He's a mentor of mine. I've met the best people in Australia. I have done everything right. I do not deserve to die on day three and just punched the ground till I created this hollow. And I really believed that there was a shift at that point. Within 12 hours, the storm started to fade and on day four was over. And I, I got out of my tent and just looked at this blue sky and thought, what the, it was just like a different planet. And the ringing in your ears was still there. It took me half a day to dig the sleds out, get the boobs out and then pack. And I started to move three kilometres away. There was a French explorer called Faisal Hanesh. And this is where passion and purpose come in. He was there just to be the third guy to cross Antarctica solo unsupported. He wanted to be the first Frenchman to the North and South Pole in one calendar year. All great things to try and do, but just not enough to get you through a shitstorm. You know, there wasn't enough purpose there for him to be there. So he, too, was convinced that he was going to die in that storm. He spent another day and a half recovering and then started to move. But by then, I was two days inland and another storm followed up a day later. He got smashed on the, on the coast again, went through a very similar experience, never really recovered. Day 17, he, he pulled the ripcord and got extracted. Day 53, as his Jamaican bobsled team, father of three, I crossed the continent and got to the other side. So, you know, often I'll use Faisal as, a, as a, an example uh, of that, you know, passion and purpose will beat talent every single time. So just go and go and go, but make sure you're in your passion, make sure you're in your purpose before you get into the firestorm. So you're effectively competing for this solo title. Yeah, this is pretty funny because I, I set this journey and thought, okay, I want to I do the first Australian coast-to-coast, coast, which was from the coast of Antarctica through the South Pole and then out to the other coast. So if you imagine 
Antarctica is a bit like a clock face. You're going from, say, 12 o'clock. Um, in this case, it was from 12 o'clock to, to the centre of the clock and then coming out at probably 8 o'clock. So he had picked the same route. We, we met in South Africa and he had, you know, much better polar pedigree than me. He trained with the Norwegians for 11 years. He'd made it to the North Pole, built like a brick shit house. He was half French, half Algerian. Um, beautiful guy, but super strong, ex-military background. I didn't have a military background. So on paper, I was screwed. You know, this guy was going to blitz me. On the aircraft, there's 10 guys going down to work in Antarctica and they they look at me in my pink jumpsuit with my set of tits on my, on my sled and they look at this hardened Frenchman uh, with his beautiful you know, French down, Pyrenex jacket and sleek sled and brand new skis, my secondhand skis, and they form a betting syndicate and go, mate, the Aussie's not going to last. He's, he's going to be gone. And um, nine of them bet for Faisal. One guy bet for me and he, he had a friend who was dying of breast cancer in a hospital in Cape Town, Lottie, and... He came to me and said, listen, I've written Lottie's name on this balloon. When you get to the South Pole, believing that I would get there, can you blow it up, say a prayer for Lottie and let the balloon go? And I said, listen, I, I will take that with honour. I'll put it in my pocket and I, I hope Lottie makes it. Anyway, uh, probably 40, uh, wouldn't have been 53, 47 days later, I made it to the South Pole and blew this balloon up for Lottie and um, hoped that she had made it, but she had died about three days before. But when I got to the other end of the continent, got home, I got a phone call from this guy, and he said, listen, I, I followed your journey with interest. Um, you know, I was the only guy that believed you would make it. And I said, well, why did you, you bet for me? And he said, I just felt that you had it. And he said, thank you for carrying Lottie. And I said, listen, honestly, uh, I didn't carry Lottie. She carried me. And, uh, you know, so that that really once again drills down that whole passion and purpose thing uh, because Faisal is much more physically strong than me. Uh, he's had two further attempts to do the same journey and failed both times. So the reality is now it'll be very hard for him to get sponsorship or, or funding. Um, but superhuman guy. Uh, we we catch up when I'm in Norway. Um, you know, we're still very very close. But he he is my crash test dummy for passion and purpose. You know, he, if he if I can align him with the right purpose, he'll be unbeatable. Now you just touched on uh, sponsorship and funding. I definitely want to come back to that to to give listeners a, an idea of how they can set their own expeditions off. But before we get into that, um, we've talked about purpose a lot. So what what is your why? Like what why why do you want to keep putting yourself in harm's way like this over and over again? Yeah, it's a good question, Adrian. And I think a lot of a lot of people have probably criticized me over the years for, you know, as a family man continually stepping back into the arena. But um, I think it's it's backing yourself and realizing that um, I'm very good at getting myself into trouble, but also quite hard to kill. I'm a bit like a cockroach. I've had 
you know, many, many, probably eight or nine near-death uh, experiences where it could have gone the other way, but, you know, through good management or fortune and favour, uh, it hasn't. So that obviously builds faith in the process. And, um, you know, one thing I talk a lot on when I'm talking to people about dreaming and visioning is getting them to understand the power of, of building an image in your mind of a successful outcome and meditating on that. So for me, my overarching faith or image is an image of Sarah and myself at 80 with a happy marriage, kids happy, um, grandchildren happy. Not that we have any yet, thank goodness. But, um, uh, you know, that image of being on a deck drinking whiskey and, and you know, you've made it to 80, uh, I hang on to so that whenever there's an incident where it looks like I'm not going to make it home, I focus on that and go, no, 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 this isn't the script. And the pound the ground moment comes back again. Numerous journeys where the deal of the cards has not been what I've wanted. I've, I've changed that through just sheer force of nature. And I think getting people to understand that they do not have to be the cow in the crush just walking down the abattoir to the captive bolt. You can go, I don't like these cards, pound the ground and, and ask for a redeal. And I think um, my purpose in journeying now is to bring all of those things back. So to test it again and again and again and show people that they can dream and vision a different outcome. They can use the faith eye to build um, almost like throwing a grappling hook to the future. The faith eye image is that that window that you're throwing the grappling hook and pulling your, your future to you, um, really getting people to understand that they have incredible strength and power within them. They have more within them. Um, I think the journeys now are less about uh, the outcomes, less about the records, but more about testing the resi resilience model. Um, I think there'll be a shift. I've probably got one more brutal Arctic journey in my head and then it starts going to horseback, motorbike, you know, push me, pulley, tram car on a railway line. You know, the journeys in my head are so varied and, and bizarre. Um, you'd probably lock me up if you saw them all, but um, I am aware that my body probably only has one more brutal uh, campaign in it. Did that? Did we cover that, Adrian? Did I? Because um, you, you're doing. Oh no, absolutely, mate! That was fantastic, and I, I love the the crossover between um, kind of like manifesting your own destiny, but you, that only works if you amplify it with a shitload of physical and mental training uh, and a process that you follow. I mean, there's there's a lot of people out there that look at books like The Secret and go, if I sit in a room and I do no training and I eat shitty food and smoke cigarettes, as long as I will myself into being healthy, then that'll do. Um, but uh, it, it's good to hear the combination of, of all of that, just mental focus, identifying what you want to achieve and regardless of what deck the, the life throws at you, you just go after it anyway. But you multiply that by a process with training, which is fantastic, I think. Yeah, and I think it's got to be balanced like that because you can't, um, you know, you just can't sit there and will it. You've got to go fight for it. And I think that's that's what we're teaching people is like you can't just sit there and complain about your situation and do nothing and expect it to change. You, you've got to get mongrel 
got to get some blood on your hands, shit on your face, and get in there and fight your way forward. Um, and you know that that can be a fun process. It doesn't have to be horrendous. Just get brutal and demand change. Like I, I want, I want more than this. You know, this is not my purpose. I'm not in my purpose now. I will pound the ground till I get into my purpose. Uh, this is that that does go back to an analogy from uh, uh, training at the speed of light with. Oh, his name eludes me. Uh, great guy, and he, and he went down and revolutionised reality-based training for New York Police Department, and he would come over and did a lot of work with the uh, uh, the Australian Army. And there's an analogy out of that where there was a young, and I think we brought it up before, but there was a young uh, female police officer, and she was getting married in a week, and she was going up to do a, a domestic violence on, on a house in America, and a gunman opened the door and just started shooting at her. And she got shot like nine something times. Um, and the story was that she was like, I'm not dying here. I'm getting married in a week. Um, this is not happening. And she kept moving forward and she kept that will to live uh, opposed to people training themselves to in those same situations where we used to train people, okay, you know, you've been shot. Now you have to lay down and act like you're dead. And I think that there's, uh, utility in your stories, like this is not happening to me now. This is not the script I've written. I'm going to keep going forward. Uh, and and Charlie Teo spoken about this um, with with people with uh, Doctor Char- Professor Charlie Teo with people yeah. saying people on operating tables or, or patients with this very good uh, outlook of living have they should have lived and they've just quit and literally killed themselves by giving up. And other people who are like, there's no way this guy is surviving. And they just wouldn't give up and didn't and survived. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, the power of the human mind is it's beyond. But, I mean, also, like, tapping on, there is something about building an alternate reality and meditating on it so that you start to – it's almost like those those software games where you build that little – alternate community and you have the, the sheep and then the fence and the house. And you, if you build that specific alternate reality in your mind and focus on it, meditating on it, um, for me, the faith eye is so specific. So to give you an example of how specific it is, um, Scarpa make two colours of boot. They make, uh, it's the boots that I've always used called the Mistral. They're very warm and they been very reliable and they don't break so I will never change my boots um, so when they arrive I know that the sponsors only got two colors there's a white boot and an orange boot but for six months I've been meditating on a faith eye image of an orange boot with my body attached stepping on the top of Dome Argus and when the boot box arrives I'm shit scared that they're going to have sent me a white boot and that's going to rattle my confidence and probably mean that I have to start the whole mind game thing again. But I've, I've meditated on this, on this image of this boot stepping on the top of the dome. And then I cut the box open and I see all those little, um, packing things that the kids love to eat. And I'm almost scared to put my hand in and grab the boot, put my hand in and I just see a hint of orange and I pull this boot out and it's like I've, I've had this eureka moment. I'm running around the house with this orange boot screaming 
and Sarah's like, what the hell is going on? You know, you've got ski boots before and never got this excited. I said, no, 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 this is part of my faith on image. I, it was always an orange boot. If they'd sent me a white boot, it would have just knocked me for six. Um, the fact that it came in the boot that was already in my mind, and then when I six months later I had that moment of putting that very boot on the top of Dome Argus, the image was almost perfectly parallel to what I put in my mind, and I'd never been to the top of Dome Argus. I, I had to imagine what it would look like and feel like. And it felt so real that it was a deja vu moment because I've been there multiple times in my mind. And any time that it looked like I wasn't going to get there because I had such a firm map of where I wanted to be, you feel it flicker and realise that you're off course and you have to fight to get back on course. So teaching people the power of the human mind, almost like the lion witch in the wardrobe where the kids open the cabinet and they step into this imaginary world. By building images of your future in your mind, you can create that cabinet that you step through. Um, and people think, man, what's he talking about? But I've done it again and again and again. So the Sahara Desert, the image that I meditated on was four tracks, four guys alive and well. And for some reason, it was a red, red, red colour sand and a very, very black river, which the Senegal River marked the end of the Sahara for us. You know, we'd risk getting our heads chopped off by Al-Qaeda bandits. We'd had 700 kilometres of landmines. You know, it was a brutal journey. We get there and I'm looking north. I see four tracks. The sand is this incredible tangy colour red and the river behind me is black and I, I'm like, I've been here. I had built this image in my mind and I've just stepped into it. The Every journey's been like that. So getting uh, people to understand the power of suggestion, the power of meditating on an outcome, um, it's more than just positive thinking and, and namby-pamby wishfulness. It, it does have some form of portal effect into your future. Mate, I couldn't agree more. And if, if uh, almost every highly successful athlete on the planet says the exact same thing and they can't all be making it up, so people need to start paying attention. Mate, before um, before I stop asking questions and get out of Max's way, do you mind going, can we go back to funding these trips? Because um, that's that's a, um, a big question I've always wondered. Like, how, how do people go about – this is obviously – um, something you do a lot of, and it can't be cheap doing these trips. How, how do you get them funded? Oh, it's it's been really difficult, Adrian. Every journey, even at my stage of adventuring, you know, we're now if I go to a sponsor and say this is what we're going to do, they know it's going to happen. But early in your career, they're like, really? You're going to pull a set of boobs across Antarctica? No, not for us. Um, so <laughs> it. <laughs> it it can be really difficult for a young adventurer cracking on getting out. And my son is battling this. He's 20 now and he's just trying to get funding for a, for a film um, in the Snowy Mountains at the moment. Um, and it's been a shit fight. He's, he's sort of got a little bit here, a little bit there. It's not a good time. You know, the, the days of Marlborough cigarettes sponsoring um, manly men doing manly pursuits are, are kind of over. Um, people know that they can pay per click 
and get a guaranteed outcome or they can pay for me to cross some crazy Antarctics lead pulling an insurance brand or something and, and they get an un, unsure outcome. So the, the Google era has not helped adventuring. Um, but, uh, you know, having said that, I think it's just about finding a, a cause that you believe in because that's where your purpose is going to come from. So if you're doing an adventure just for shits and gigs, it's probably not going to be a success if you've picked a hard enough challenge. So make sure you're aligned with a purpose and then just go and pound the pavement. I mean, it's it's time and time again. I was very fortunate on this last journey to have bumped into a, a phenomenal family out of Sydney um, that had connections to Mawson, the Explorer, and really felt that they wanted to help. Um, because, you know, you can spend anywhere from a couple of hundred grand to half a million funding uh, a solo expedition. Once you put a team behind that on the ice, you could spend a couple of million on an Antarctic expedition very easily. Um, So, you know, it's got a balance. You've got to raise for the charity more than you've spent uh, to make it even look like a worthwhile endeavour. And it doesn't mean... One big argument I had with Dick Smith years ago was that Charity and adventure are a good a good union. Uh, he felt that adventure should always be pure and just be about adventure, but it's probably because he's never done a brutal endurance journey. He's always sat in his ass in an aircraft. So <laughs> uh, if you don't have adequate purpose attached to an endurance journey, you're not going to make it. You know, well, why the hell would you? If, if you're just there for yourself, um, you are going to tap out of the first storm. Um, so we've had heated discussions about that, but uh, I think adventure and charity work beautifully. Um, but it's also the funding side. Now, if people um, understand that, that their giving is not going to your journey, then they're happy to give. We've always had to build a firewall between people's giving for the charity. So generally it's been for McGrath Foundation where we go, listen, uh, this gala ball is to raise funds for the charity, not for the expedition. That's covered independently by sponsors and and that would be food sponsors, fuel sponsors, travel sponsors. Um, But, you know, late in my career now, it's always got to a point where the amount of legwork I do to go and get that sponsorship is so arduous that if I just went and did a day's work and put that money aside, uh, we'd be better off. so it can be a, a really tricky thing. And I, I think going, it's not a really clear and concise answer, but the only thing I can say is, is pick a good cause and get a good branding attached to it and then just pound the pavement to get that sponsorship. Noting that uh, you've got one big Arctic expedition left and you've, you've had two cracks at the Simpson, have you conquered the Simpson yet? And what's, uh, what have you got coming up in the future uh, and so we can sort of promote or... Um, is the Sim- have you conquered the Simpson? No, no the Simpson is a, is a bitch of a desert. Like, it, it is so difficult because it's got this weird um, phenomenon where it doesn't have a prevailing wind. So to cross any sort of desert or Antarctic uh, or Arctic waste, you really need a, a good prevailing wind and you get yourself upwind on that desert and then work your way downwind using kite power um, it would be relatively easy to cross by bicycle or motorbike or camel uh, because you're just 
making small distances every day. The problem with the Simpson is this last attempt, uh, I did 200 kilometres out of 620. Uh, in one 65-kilometre period, I had 10 trees grab kites and I had to climb trees and, and get the kite out. And you're pulling your hair out and the language is, is not good. Um, the flies are just all over your face. They're constantly trying to eat your eyeballs, crap down your ear hole. Um, the, the sand is not smooth. It's got big tussocks of grass, so you get pounded all the time. Uh, so I, I'm going to go back this year and we'll rebuild the buggy so that the, the axle is higher because I think with um, the advent of COVID, there's been more people going, oh, let's go to the desert, more traffic, and the ruts have got deeper. So the middle of the sled was just grinding across the ruts. Um I think we need some suspension because it's taken me about two weeks to get my back sorted when I got back. It's just getting slammed so no. Um And the kites were perfect. Like, I was really happy with the ozone kites. They worked really well. Um, it's just the sled. I need to kind of design, like, a almost an arching axle, slightly bigger tyres, and get some weight out of the sled. That thing was a, a beast to pull on the tops of the sand dunes. Um, but, the, you know... The Simpsons almost been like, you know, when you, you have a really good book, I've had two goes at it. I'll be disappointed to some degree when I get across it by wind power alone because it's it's been such an amazing relationship with that desert. It, for those people listening who have not been to the Simpson Desert, you need to get out there. The sunsets are the most incredible in the world. This purple hue that comes in just before sunset, um, the tangy colour of the dunes, the, the wildlife, and then the, the nighttime stars beyond anything other than probably a ship at sea um, with all of the deck lights off. Uh, the Simpson Desert nightlife is, uh, the star life is just unbelievable. So, yeah, Max, that one, uh, probably August next year. I think I just need to carve a whole month and just head out there. I've got a, a mate here who um, I want to go hook up with some of the Indigenous guys out there and learn how to just survive. Because as a white fella, I realised if the vehicle goes, our survival time out here is probably three, four days. Um, the, the bush tucker specialist will still be going 10, 15 days later. So if I can learn a little bit of the, the Indigenous guys out there, I'll be stoked before this next expedition. Um, so that's kind of on the cards. So we're rebuilding the sled. In the background, I had a meeting on Saturday with two very clever guys, um, Dale uh, Chapman, who's a board shaper on the coast, and another guy, Aaron, who's a bit of a carbon fibre uh, engineer, to, to work out my sleds for the Arctic journey because the, the idea with this journey is it, it's to have a crack at a journey that's had two, two attempts before and they both fail. Um, so I'm looking at, at it from a different... It's getting to a very, re, very remote part of the Arctic Ocean. Um, but to do that with the global warming effect, we've got a passage of Arctic Ocean. So the sleds will be in like a catamaran configuration. We'll fly kites. It's going to be myself and Simon again. Uh, we'll get to the edge of the ice pack, break the sleds down into single configuration and then manhaul all the way across the Arctic Ocean and then out the other side, put them back into catamaran configuration and make our way to Norway. So it's basically from Russia 
to Norway in a direct line. It will be a brutal uh, journey and certainly the longest Australian journey ever in the Arctic Ocean. Um, so that's going on in the background. And the time frame on that, I'm not overly excited about giving a time frame to it because I think the sleds will need to be built. I'll need to get up to Norway, test them there, and then learn you know, what needs to be changed, come back. So it could be a three- to four-year process to get that together. I look forward to it. I can't wait. <laughs> uh, so your website's uh, under construction for your um, for your um, guest speaking, keynote speaking, and your um, some of your promotional yeah. stuff and your blogs and that. Uh, when do we see that coming up, and, and where can they find it? Yeah, I, I, the best way to follow what's going on at the moment is probably my Instagram, Dr. Jeff Wilson, G-E-O-F-F Wilson. Um, so grab on that. The, um, the speaking gig one definitely needs some work. We've, we've been pretty slack there. Um, not super good at self-promotion, but um, get on to Instagram. Well, I'm in the middle of a resilient series, actually, from the Simpson Desert, so I think we're up to tip number three of ten. So grab on that. And that's really designed for you know, tips to really help people during the COVID era. What do we do to stay sane and stay focused during this period, which for everyone has called on some resilience. Some businesses or jobs have gone really well. Others have been decimated. Uh, people have been locked up for weeks. You know, the, the domestic violence has gone through the roof. Mental health has gone through the roof. So there's definitely a time where we need to talk about resilience. So, yeah, get on that Instagram, Dr. Jeff Wilson. Probably the best way to track me, Max. Nice. Mate, uh, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy uh, with your own businesses and your expeditions. Um, and I, I really appreciate a guy of your calibre taking the time to talk to two knuckleheads. Um, mate, oh, love no. having you on. I'd love to get you back on and, and talk uh, before you start any of your other attempts and, and inspire Australia. Yeah, absolutely, Max. Well, great to meet you both. And, um, you know, I, I think that what you're doing, just keeping things moving and inspiring people, giving them something to work towards is phenomenal. So keep keep doing what you're doing. And uh, if Coco's an ambassador, when you're both friends of mine, he's, he's an absolute champion. I was really blessed to, to meet him. And uh, we owe you all... Uh, you know, debt of gratitude for your service and for your time and dedication to the country. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much. Thanks, mate. <laughs> awesome.